Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. For those of you that I haven't met, my name is Brian, and my wife and I, Cassidy, uh, we had the pleasure of adopting both of our two children. And it's a pretty interesting process, and when we were six years ago, we didn't really know much about the process and what that entailed. Uh, and, and so you may have never heard of this before, but if, uh, if you have, uh, then you would be a lot uh, further along than Cassidy and I were. Uh, but there's this part of the process at the very beginning called a home study. And so if you've heard of this, great. But for me, it was new. And so this is where a social worker who has been specially trained actually comes in and scrutinizes every detail of your life. Now, I actually thought it was pretty strange when our social worker opened the front door in full hazmat suit with a microscope and dustpan. <laughs> I'm kidding. That really didn't happen, obviously. But she did, uh, she came in, she asked us for financial records, she asked us about our marriage, she asked us about our, uh, how we would raise children, our philosophy of how to raise children, which I think is kind of funny, right? <laughs> like, I don't know, it's, uh, I never thought about that before. <laughs> Background checks, um, and she walked around and checked out every little part of our house to make sure that it was ready to welcome a child, that we were suitable parents. Cassidy and I spent days uh, scrubbing grout, painting, putting together baby furniture, not even knowing how long this process would actually take, but the whole works. Now, when our social worker, Pat Mills, I still remember her name, walked in, she, she kind of ran the gamut of questioning for us, uh, and she walked all over the house. But the one thing that I thought was pretty interesting was right when she walked in the door, she looked over. And she saw sitting on my couch, she saw our Russian blue cat, Shadow. And she walks over to Shadow and starts asking questions about him and how long have we had him, what kind of cat, what's he like, things like that. Which I'm like, why is she so interested in this cat? Right? She walks over there and she starts to pet the cat. And, I'm, and she starts to pet it a little more aggressively than I think is probably you should do for cats. I'm like, do you need lessons on how to pet a cat? Is that what's going on? You know, right? And so I was thinking, I was like, uh, my blood pressure started going up real bad. I was thinking, oh man, this cat is about to have enough of this and he's about to take a big old snap out of her and the adoption process is just done, right? And so thankfully Shadow didn't, he remained docile and, and I was, but I, I was kind of weirded out by, by that. But later on, the, the thing is, is that Pat actually let us know that even animals were checked to see if they would welcome a child into their home. And thankfully, she was extremely gracious uh, to us in our home study. And we brought our son Isaac home four months later after we began the process. I think we probably all know what it's like to live life under a microscope, right? Like if you've ever been a part of a job interview or a promotion interview, something that, you know, people are looking at you, you know what it's like to live your life and have your whole life on display. Or maybe meeting your significant parents for the very first time. I remember my wife, she did this thing where she actually convinced her dad not to bring out the gun cleaning kit, which was very kind of her. I guess she did actually want me to not be scared off. Uh, 
Or maybe you felt like you've been under the microscope walking in church for the very first time. That maybe you're kind of trying to think, what are these people going to think of me? And even if in the moment we don't necessarily feel scrutinized, the worst part for even a lot of us, and I would, I would lump myself in here, is, is this idea that leads up to the encounter. Like we begin, before this even happens, we begin to have these expectations of others' expectations. For instance, some of us, or some, we might actually think in our heads, well, am I dressed appropriately? You know, or some of, uh, some of us might be brave and actually admit something along the lines of, I hope I don't do anything to, to, to get them not to like me, right? Some of us even hide behind our insecurities by just putting them out there on display. For instance, I've got this thing that I do when people come over to my house that I, I'm pretty certain was passed on for my mom because I've seen her do it and it irritates me. Uh, but where people come over and I start pointing out the flaws of my house. Like, I'll say, yeah, sorry, I didn't get time to dust, right? I didn't dust this over here. Or, hey, you know, one day I'm actually going to get to actually caulking that trim right above the windowsill where you can't see. <laughs> you know, things that people aren't necessarily looking for, I just end up pointing them out. You know, I kind of wonder if this is what the nation of Israel was thinking about Hosea and, and these detrimental practices that he was calling out against them. See, so was God really trying to hammer them out to a pulp so that these accusations would just, just break them all the way down? Or is there something else that's going on behind God's judgment? Because here's the tension. When, when we think of pointing out something in someone or something that is pointed out in us that's not so positive, a lot of times these judgments are meant to tear down or destroy us. And sometimes they really hurt, especially if they're by people who are supposed to love us. And oftentimes, the way that we think about people judging us, they kind of drift over into the way that we view God's judgment. But is there another side of God's judgment that we haven't yet considered? Let's take a look at our text. See, throughout the book of Hosea, we have the, we've been hearing about how Israel has constantly been turning away from God. They've been worshiping false idols. They were also trusting in their own military strength and their wealth that they gained from their neighbor, Assyria's downfall to Assyria. All throughout Hosea, we start hearing accusations and we start hearing judgments against Israel and Judah and Ephraim. And we can see in the first part of chapter, chapter 6 where God calls for Israel to repent and return to him. However, we get the sense, even in the latter half of chapter 6, that, that, that this is not happening. In fact, Israel has just become so hard-hearted that they don't respond to God's calling to repent. And ultimately, God renders his judgment in chapters 9 and 10. That verdict is exile. Now, if I, as I've been reading Hosea, there's just one thing that I find really difficult when it comes to reading this, and that's the consistency with which Israel seems to continually offend the God who brought them out of slavery from Egypt. And as consistent as these offenses are and, and how, how they respond to these offenses and to God, we kind of get this feeling that Israel has gone down the road too far to be redeemed. I mean, looking at the indictments, I start to think, man, they made their bed, they can lie in it. They can deal with it. It looks like there's just little hope for God's redemption for Israel. 
However, sprinkled throughout the entire book of Hosea are these little snippets where God's compassion shows through. Verses like chapter 6, verse 3, that says, let's know, let's press on to know the Lord, who's appearing is as certain as the dawn, who will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that give drink to the earth. It's beautiful. But my favorite has to be here at the beginning of chapter 11. See, Hosea directly confronts this notion that God has become callous and hard-hearted against Israel. Hosea paints this portrait of a God who is loving and compassionate towards his child Israel, whom he's adopted. See, at the beginning of chapter 11, God speaks so lovingly. He says, while you were a child enslaved in Egypt, I loved you. It was I who chose you. I called you. But the more I called, the further you went away. Have you forgotten? It was I who taught you to walk. It was I who led you. I lifted you up to my cheek. I bent down and I fed you. These are the words of a passionate, loving father who is pleading for his child to remember the ends to which he's gone to bring them back to himself. But those beckoning cries, they're to no end. In fact, it's not God who's grown callous. It's actually Israel They have become so hard-hearted that verse 7 actually says that Israel is bent on turning away from God. And even if they try to call out to God, God will not raise them up. Now, if we stopped there, I mean, that's a pretty bleak picture, right? But at least the beautiful depiction of a father loving his children gives us some reassurance that God still cares in spite of Israel's disregard for their father. But then God does something that just grabs at my heart in verses 8 and 9. He says something to his children. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart, it winces within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. See, this is the beauty of our loving Heavenly Father. Even in the midst of outright rebellion, God's compassion outweighs his anger. See, if only Israel had received this and seen it, if only they had realized that the God of the universe actually saw them as his child, maybe they would have turned back and repented. God was crying out for them to come back, yet they drifted further and further off his path of righteousness. You see, I think Israel had a blind spot that a lot of us struggle with in our lives. And that's self-reliance. See, if you look at Israel during Hosea's time, they were so focused on their financial gains and exploiting those gains that they actually lost sight for their need for God. Even their false worship of these pagan deities actually showed their reliance on something other than the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, by all the pagan God was, was, uh, was Israel's, that Israel was worshiping was actually the thing that they looked to to provide crops and so that they would produce. And so we can see where Israel was cr- counting on these made-up deities instead of trusting their God of their fathers. It was no longer for them 
about communion with God, their father, and the flourishing that he wanted for the rest of this world. For Israel, it became more about how much wealth they could gain or how much military, their own military strength could protect them or even having enough food on the table. And here's what happened. This fear-based, self-reliant viewpoint, it squelched out their dependence on God, who from the very beginning provided for their every need. Even still, with Israel's defiance, God's compassion outweighed his anger. You know, if it were up to me, I would have pronounced the judgment and just carried it through, right? I would have gotten it over with. I mean, if they, they want to rely on themselves, let them fend for themselves. That's so, so beautiful that God is so much more compassionate. See, when we feel like we've gone too far down the road away from God and the destination that God has called us, there, there he is waiting for us to return. When we feel like God has abandoned us because of the mistakes that we made, he's right there, his arms are open and ready to receive. And when our self-reliance, it blocks our obvious need for God, even then, we can turn to our provider. No matter where you've come from or where you've gone, or even how hard your life is, God sees you, he knows you, you or his child, you can trust in him. God's compassion far outweighs his anger. You know, our sermon series has been called Measured Against the Standard. God has a standard, do we measure up? Have you ever thought that maybe we are the ones that are doing the measuring? Maybe we're the ones measuring God? Yeah, we know what it's like to be scrutinized, and we know what it's like to be judged by others, but have you considered that maybe we have beliefs about God that just don't measure up? Viewpoints that put God in this box that don't allow him to be God? This thinking such as, you know, for instance, God's love can run out. Like that he's given up on me. Or even that God can't possibly be my everything, right? I invite you to do something in your personal life with Christ. I invite you to do something maybe a little hard. I invite you to measure God's compassion. Measure it. Take stock of it. But also invite you to do something even harder. I invite you to measure God's anger. Now, I'm not saying put God to the test. That's a whole different thing. But I bet if you take time and you take an account of the ways in which God has shown you mercy and grace and compassion you will find that God's compassion always and far outweighs his anger. And I think that's why the psalmist in chapter 30, verse 5 says, you know, his anger lasts for a second, but his favor lasts a lifetime. That's why the meal that, about which we are to partake soon it's especially important. It serves this reminder for us that Jesus, God made flesh, would give his life for the sake of God's mission of redeeming the world. Now here's the deal. Christ did not do that out of anger. He did that through his compassion. God reaches out to us through this act at the communion table and he invites us to, sit, to taste and to see that our heavenly good Father 
is good. God's compassion always outweighs his anger. Won't you turn your heart to him today? Let's pray.